thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. The AASM released an update to the scoring manual earlier this year. Some of the changes were minor and others more significant. Adhering to the AASM scoring manual is an edict of accreditation. Dr. Matt Traster, Dr. Alcibiades Rodriguez, and Dr. Rich Berry are here to review these changes and highlight the most clinically pertinent information from the latest iteration of the scoring manual version 3. Dr. Traster is a sleep neurologist in private practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Rodriguez is the medical director of the NYU Langone Comprehensive Epilepsy Center Sleep Center, treating patients with epilepsy and sleep disorders. Dr. Rich Berry is a professor of medicine at the University of Florida Pulmonary Critical Care in Sleep Medicine. Dr. Berry has been a leader in the sleep medicine field and has received the AASM Excellence in Education Award in 2010 and the Nathaniel Kleitman Award by the AASM for contributions to the field of sleep medicine in 2020. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for the invitation. So I actually attended your session at APSS on updates to the scoring manual. And to me, most of it seemed to really be focused on the 3% hypopnea rule. So what changed? Well, for, thank you for attending that session, and I'm sorry you had to attend. I wish you could have played around with Pac-Man. <laughs> I wish you could have played around a Pac-Man with Chris Winter in the AASM Lounge because that might have been more fun. But I, I think I think we were all surprised at the reaction to the change making four percent scoring optional. For those of us that have you know been on this committee for a long time, that was really the least significant change for most of us from version two point six to version three, because the decision to move in this direction was announced you know, almost six years ago in 2018. There was a, a JCSM paper by Dr. Maholtra that, that talked about you know, how the definition of respiratory events, particularly that of hypopneas, has evolved over time because of advancing technology that allowed us to you know, better detect airflow and, and how we, if we aren't utilizing arousal-based scoring, we're missing diagnoses in up to maybe 30 to 40% of patients who have OSA, particularly in those who are younger and those who are not obese. And so in this paper, Dr. Dr. Holcher doesn't even mention you know, women and minorities, and we know that right. people who have darker skin don't always register you know, desaturations as well. And, women with sleep apnea manifest clinically differently. And, you know, a lot more of it's based on arousals and desaturations. So I think it was a big surprise to all of us that that was the takeaway message from the meeting. Yeah, that was really interesting to me because I agree with you. That was kind of my understanding. Um, that paper that you quoted, I actually have a citation to that in my interpretations where I will talk about the importance of arousal-based um, events so I, I agree with you. I wasn't, I didn't realize that this was as significant a change as maybe a lot of people felt. Yeah, I, I agree. So I, you know, I think, and I, I don't know if Rich or Al has anything else to say about it, but I, I, to me, it, uh, that's like, obviously we should be doing that. That seems like the right thing to do, but there was a whole lot of other stuff that's pretty interesting too. That, that's correct. And from my perspective, uh, being that it was in the scoring manual for two, two and a half years, is that even we know those changes were coming, they were not stated in the uh, other iterations of the manual. So until this time. So mm -hmm. maybe, maybe from an outsider point of view, the changes were coming, but they were not there yet. And then what finally came, some people, I guess, they took them by surprise. That's, that's my, probably my take. 
And it's more tightly linked to accreditation now. Well, I mean, so that's so I, I would I don't I don't I don't know that it's more tightly linked, but I guess it just depends on how you look at it. So if you look at any point of the manual, it talks about you know the different sort of rules and and it talks about the rules that are you know recommended acceptable acceptable or, or optional. And when you see acceptable rules, you know those are things that can be used as an alternative to the recommended rule, the discretion of the clinician or investigator. The optional rules are typically for things that are more uncommonly encountered or events not known to necessarily have physiological significance or really in this case, maybe events for which there was no consensus decision. So for the purposes of accreditation, what we're supposed to do is use those things that are either recommended or acceptable um, without any risk to accreditation. And you can still use the optional rules. However, you still have to report those things that are either recommended or acceptable without any risk to accreditation. So I, I don't want to say it's more tightly linked, but I think I can see how people might think that. Yeah, I think that was, I think that's sort of the angst around it. Um, because when, when I think it was a few years ago, where there was a little bit of conflict between what the AASM was recommending, or or probably around the time of that paper, and still what CMS will cover. And so that's where I feel stuck, right? So yes, I, 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 I understand the 3% rule. But isn't it kind of moot? Like if, if Medicare is not going to pay for CPAP, then how does that help us? There was a hypopnea scoring rule task force that I was the head of, and it actually led to a JCSM publication. And if someone wants to look at the whole history, uh, that's a good, relatively concise review. Uh, the task force also looked at the impact on time and scoring and um, talked with a lot of uh, vendors, uh, software vendors, and the conclusion was, is if it's set up right, it, it adds very little um, extra time in scoring. Uh, but as uh, you alluded to, Dr. Kosla, the, the real problem is, okay, you have both things in your, um, in your report, so you're adherent to the uh, uh, standards, but now what do you recommend? And, and this is the, what the, the problem. I mean, it's hard to not use the Medicare uh, rules if the person has Medicare. Right. So what, what I'm currently doing is I state the outcome of both and, um, and then, you know, try to make a relevant uh, recommendation. Uh, for example, suppose someone is young and, uh, and it doesn't get covered by Medicare if they uh, have a, uh, are covered under the 3% arousal rule, that's great, but when they turn uh, over 65 and get Medicare, uh, if they were going to use the same report, it would be important to um, at least give uh, the 4% AHI and also the uh, impression of what that meant and what the recommendation would be. So, uh, but that's my challenge. I don't know about the other people's challenge. I don't find having both um, both definitions that that difficult. And you hit on something really important when you were querying the vendors that if it's set up properly, it's not a huge burden. Um, but sometimes getting it set up is is problematic. I know we uh, went through it a few years ago, and um, and it was hard. We had to do a lot of sort of special reports with the vendor and and so on and so forth. But um, but yeah, your point is well taken. And 
especially when we consider the patient that is close to Medicare age. And how should we be doing those interpretations and and really informing our patients that you qualified under this rule, however, Medicare doesn't recognize this rule. And when you turn 65, we may have to retest you, for example, to qualify if they only, you know, qualified based on 3% hypopneas. If you can, if you have both rules there and say how you uh, determine them, uh, that that at least at least the report will be useful for yeah. that. Yeah, that's a good point. So, is this all sort of um, a function of technology being better? Well, I, I would say to some extent, yes, because I think that the flow monitoring has gotten better. But I think it's worth you know what Rich alluded to earlier in his task force paper um, describing the kind of history of this, I think it's worth yeah. taking a couple of seconds to kind of talk about it. So you know, we, we first started talking about, you know, obstructive sleep apnea you know, in 1976 with Dr. Gilliman, where you know, he's describing a cessation of airflow lasting 10 seconds. Then in 79, Dr. Block and associates described, you know, hypopneas, which were thought to be um, significant when they were associated with a 4% desaturation. So that's where that 4% comes from. But it really wasn't until around 1988 with Dr. Gould and associates when they talked about hypopneas themselves, not people without apnea, just hypopneas, actually having clinically significant symptomatology. So that's what led to this kind of famous 1999 consensus report that has been colloquially referred to as the Chicago criteria, where it emphasized that, you know, nasal pressure as a semi-quantitative, you know, measure of airflow, for lack of a better word, and they recommended against the use of thermal sensors for hypopneas and just thermal sensors for apneas because they're, you know, not as sensitive. And so that's based on the the obstructive sleep apnea or hypopnea being described as complete cessation or a 50% reduction in a valid measure of airflow accompanied by a 3% oxygen desaturation. So for whatever reason, and, and if anybody on this call knows better than I do, but in 2001, CMS adopted the use of an AHI, but they still stuck with a 30% drop in airflow associated with a 4% drop in oxygen desaturation. So when the AASM put out their first manual to kind of replace RNK, in 2007, you guys might remember that the, the hypopnea definition, there was one that was kind of consistent with the CMS definition and uh, the sleep scoring nerds call that H4, where you kind of describe this, describe this, you know, 4% drop as a hypopnea and an alternative definition based on the greater than equal to 50% drop in airflow for greater than equal to 10 seconds associated with a greater than or equal to 3% desaturation or an arousal. And then in 2012, that number changed from a greater than equal to 50% drop to a greater than equal to 30% drop with the same thing. So that's where all of that comes from. But all of that change in why the change from 50 to 30, not necessarily the desaturation, but the change from 50 to 30 was because the technology and the sensors got better. Mm. So why won't Medicare change? I, I went with the ASM uh, for two meetings with uh, CMS. and. Um, CMS uh, would like, in other words, they're not going to change on the basis of a consensus uh, statement. They're, they would change based on hard data. And, um, and so that's, that's where it is. Uh, you have to have hard data showing a hard outcome um, that using the 3% uh, the arousal um, is, is, is better and has benefits. Um, so one of the things that the Apopnea Task Force focused on was actually that group of patients, that group of patients that would not have OSA, 
uh, under 4%, but would have OSA under 3% or arousal. So that's, uh, uh, a, that is the group that's the most effective by what definition you use. And there is some limited evidence to suggest that treating that group uh, improves outcomes. However, the evidence is fairly limited, uh, just one or two papers. And so uh, I think, in other words, for CMS to change, they would need um, some hard data. It turns out that getting hard data is not easy. Uh, it's not uh, inexpensive. And it also, you have to do the studies correctly. Um, and so you have to target a group uh, that is symptomatic and would likely change with CPAP. And then you have to have them be reasonably adherent to CPAP. So there's several challenges. So this is where I kind of get stuck, though, because don't we, you know, I think a lot of the data is on non-sleepy patients, right? And so are we always going to be stuck because then it's sort of unethical to withhold PAP therapy from sleepy people? Well, so I think Rich and, 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 and the task force that he went through, you know, talked about ways we can, we can look at doing this. I mean, you could potentially do a CPAP withdrawal study, which maybe doesn't have those same ethical implications, but, um, and, and there's, there's other things you can sort of look at, but I mean, the bottom line is, is that I think, you know, you, you do have to say there's definitely a concern about withholding treatment from people that are really sleepy or in those that have moderate to severe sleep apnea, the, the people who are most likely to demonstrate the most obvious improvement in their cardiometabolic outcomes in comparison to like, you know, sham or best medical care controls. There's just no easy answers to that one. Well, one thing uh, I think, um, in other words, it's been a, the concentration has been on cardiometabolic um, outcomes, which are no doubt important. Uh, but, you know, you look at the studies and the groups that actually responded, even in observational studies, were the, the severe ones. So, you know, so one of the things to consider is that when you're dealing with a milder group, is that the right out set of outcomes you could, should consider? Or should you consider outcomes of quality of life and uh, ability to function rather than cardiovascular outcomes? And I think clinically, that's what most physicians see when they treat these patients with milder disease. Uh, they uh, have an improved quality of life. And so the real question is how to capture that. Mm. Yeah, that's correct. I'm going to agree with that. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, that's such a good point, right? I think knowing about cardiometabolic disease is great for informing our patients, right? But I, I have wondered why we don't just consider improvement of symptoms and sleepiness as an important endpoint. And isn't that enough that we would, you know, want to treat our patients with PAP therapy? So um, you have to use the right uh, measurements, like uh, the one of the study uh, by Wims et al., uh, they, they showed uh, not only did Epworth improve, but also the vitality scale improved. And so you need, we just need to figure out ways to capture uh, the improvement. Um, as I recall, when we talked with CMS, they weren't uh, tremendously enchanted with the idea of an improvement in the Epworth sleepiness scale. They may, that may have been just a, that, that, um, that moment and those people we were talking to uh, but there are other outcomes, um, uh, days missed at work, 
um, and uh, just mood and vitality and so on. So one of the challenges is to uh, figure out how to capture that. That's a really good point. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the updated scoring manual. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Join colleagues and subject matter experts February 23rd through 24th for Sleep Medicine Trends 2024. Explore emerging technologies and innovations in sleep medicine that will enhance patient quality of care. Learn more at aasm.org forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Traster, Dr. Rodriguez, and Dr. Barry about the latest edition of the scoring manual. So you've raised some really important points, right, about capturing these endpoints that are meaningful and reproducible. So what can we do about it? Well, I, I, you know, I, I'm definitely of the notion that just because insurance doesn't pay for it doesn't mean it's not the right idea. And I, I think about, you know, our patients who, you know, pay for supplements on their own or do other treatments on their own and they find value and it makes them feel healthy. And I think if we stop defining what's good for us based on what an insurance company will pay for and understand there's some pragmatic concerns with what I'm saying, mm -hmm. I think eventually if we have the data points that will come along because we're, 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 we're obviously if we're if we're using the traditional scoring that Medicare wants us to use we're missing people that have the disease. And if we if we can keep identifying them and keep treating them and showing that they're getting better, I think the proof will be in the pudding and the insurance companies will recognize what we're doing and evolve. Now, obviously that hasn't happened in the last 15 years, uh, but I do think it will happen in good time. I just think you have to do the right thing as a doctor and treat patients that have symptomatic disease and work with them to, to go through it. And, and not everything is paid for. I mean, if you have someone that has like, you know, recurrent pyelonidal cysts, Insurance doesn't pay for laser hair removal, which like fixes the problem entirely. And so like, you know, it's, it's just, you have to just sort of work through things as best as you can. Yeah, and it's an interesting conversation too. For my point of view, um, if I got something, is my institution, for example, we have been treating the 3% for a long time. I mean, we need to make the exemption for Medicare because they will not pay for the devices or treatment if we just report the 3%. But as Matt says, if the patient is symptomatic, even with mild sleep apnea, uh, they deserve to be treated. And again, unless you're Medicare, you're probably going to get some type of treatment covered by your insurance. So in terms of my institution, we have been doing that for a long time. And I'm not sure other institutions, but I think most of, of clinicians recognize that the 3% in a patient symptomatic is clinically significant. Yeah, I agree. I've, I remember years ago, sort of having this conundrum and being like, okay, is this real? Is this not real? Should we treat this? And um, I know we've been treating it for like 15 years and patients, you know, not everybody gets better, but at least we're offering the option, right? That's that's sort of my issue with it is Correct. that I think we should at least be able to offer them treatment. And then if they don't want to do it, fine. But it's not, you know, I don't think it's fair if we see something there that we see is disrupting their sleep and to sort of sit back and say, oh, well, you know what? You have a normal BMI and you're younger. Um, your physiology doesn't allow you to desaturate to 4% and we're going to withhold this treatment from you, <laughs> right? So I like right. this idea of having that conversation that, yeah, just because insurance doesn't cover it, it doesn't mean it's not important. And, and, I, and not every not every treatment for like, you know, mild to moderate sleep apnea costs money. I mean, like if you have someone do orofacial myofunctional therapy, you know, they can do it on their own. It costs time, but they can do it on their own. I mean, if they have position dependent sleep apnea, you know, just, 
you know, have them take a fanny pack, stuff some golf balls in it, you know, put it on their back and maybe they won't, maybe their sleep apnea will reduce in severity. Maybe it won't be perfect, but there's things you can do that don't cost a dime, including lifestyle, you know, manipulation and things like that. So I, I think there's things we can encourage people about that just because their insurance company doesn't pay for CPAP or maybe, you know, a mandibular advancement device doesn't mean that, that you can't, there's not something you can do to kind of help put yourself on the right track. Yes. Do you have luck with um, oral myofunctional therapy? So, yeah, I mean, I, we, we recommend it all the time and, you know, and there, there's a device that you can, you know, buy now, as you guys probably know, and I think CMS actually is in the process of approving it, but that genioglossal mm-hmm. stimulator. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, you know, I think it's very effective. I mean, it's not, it's not going to take you from severe to, you know, mild or zero, but I think if you have mild to moderate, it will certainly put you on the right track. Right. I showed that helps the snoring a little bit. And for mild, as Matt says, mild to moderate sleep apnea may be another option, right? So what about other major changes to the scoring manual? So I, I can add a couple of the ones I presented. Yeah. Uh, so we I presented the cardiac rules. And in that portion, in the section A, uh, we added a new optional rule about using single modified EKG lead one in the torso. And we added a new feature, uh, how to put the electrodes, right? Just, just another option that you will have to place your electrodes, right? And we added a new recommended rule for scoring the presence of second and third degree AV block and cardiac pacemaker rhythm with some nice illustration that Dr. Berry helped to create. Right. So I think um, one figure can add more than 1,000 words. And that, I think, is a big improvement that we'll have in certain sections of the manual. Right. Um, also, we, uh, we added the movement rules, um, the PLMS. Uh, we added uh, the terminology that mentions that a candidate leg movement instead of a significant leg movement. Right. Yeah. It's a candidate leg movement that leads to create a PLMS, right? I talk, We thought that the candidate, uh, and there's some discussion that I've been doing before my time that probably Matt and Dr. Berry can explain a little bit better, but that the candidate movement sounds like a more general term that will be um, helpful to have. And that part of that candidate movement should occur to an epoch score as a sleep. And we also simplify in section F all those little movements that had their own section, alternating like muscle activation, hypnagogic foot tremor, and excessive fragmentary myoclonus. Um, instead of having their own section, I guess they were downgraded to having just one section. Called scoring other movement disorders. So that's, that's, that's my take. There is some extra rules I think Matt can, can add now. Hmm? Well, I, you know, so there, there just were the biggest, the biggest, to me, the biggest change was the addition of the parameters for multiple sleep latency testing and maintenance mm-hmm. and wakefulness testing, which is, you know, result right. from Dr. Kron's work and her task force. And, and you know, that, that we, there was no place for any of those things before there was a, there were position papers and practice parameter things that the ASM had put out, but there was never really anything else like that written in as far as like having a standard. Um, there were little things like a lot of the, the changes were housekeeping, you know, kind of things like, you know, filter settings. Like, for example, the EKG filter setting was was so low that it couldn't pick up pacemaker artifacts. It used to be like 70 hertz was the high mm-hmm. frequency filter. And now that's changed to 100. So you can see pacemaker artifact, which we're now you know requesting be scored. Um, there were some little other little changes like you know, the, the alpha rhythm. Um, which is alpha rhythm 
for the neurologists out there all know that this is like the resting rhythm of the occipital cortex. That's that, you know, when you close your eyes, you see this eight to 13 Hertz, in the occipital channel, you know, rhythm, uh, but that's so frequently confused with alpha frequency. And so the, the, the change of the definition was to talk about the, uh, you know, the posterior dominant rhythm. And so that, that changed throughout. There were some other things uh, that there, the, the previous version of the manual talked about using conceptual age and there's some you know, scrutiny about you know, when conception begins. So now, now the, the, the termination is you know, post-menstrual age. And so those are, the, those are kind of some other things. The, the last kind of thing was the arousal rule mm. where you know, arousals that you know, can precede wakefulness. And, and so it's just, it's just basically saying that if you have an arousal that you know, precedes wakefulness, you can still score both. So even if it's in an epic of wake, you can still score an arousal that precedes wakefulness. So I'm going to agree with Matt that probably the major change that we had besides the uh, hypomia rule is the adding of the MSLT and WT uh, guidelines that we didn't have before. So it sounds like part of the changes are because technology has improved. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think to some extent, like we like we mentioned before, I think with the flow, the, the flow technique, the detection of flow, you know, based off of hypopnea and things like that, that to me would be the same as that. And I, but otherwise, I, I don't know that there's been major technological changes that that, that, that ruled things out too much. So, does the limb movement change um, make it more congruent with other societies? So this is a great story, and Rich, I don't know if you want to take it or I should take it. But so the you can I'll, 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 <laughs> so you know we so Rich and I worked for I would say nearly two years on trying to bring the AASM scoring of limb movements in line with the World Sleep Association movements. And Dr. Fiore in, in Italy has done all the work that shows, you know, there's some subtle changes we could make. And we we were in the process of doing it. We worked for a long time. And then the, the AASM board of directors decided that because there wasn't that big of a clinical change making this shift, that, that maybe making this big paradigm shift was, was too much. And so kind of our tipping our hat to what Dr. You know, Fiore has done was to kind of embrace his use of the word candidate limb movement instead of a significant limb movement. So I think it does put us in the in the same, you know, we're kind of, I don't, I don't want to say we're on the same page, but we're all certainly looking in the same direction, at least this way. And I think eventually we'll move towards having a single scoring standard because there is data to support what they have as being the correct one. And Rich, I don't know if you'd add anything to that. Yeah, I think uh, the board of directors felt that um, that, in other words, the effort, they weren't sure that the effort uh, that would be required to teach everybody the new rules would be worth it clinically. <laughs> um, and, and actually, the PLM indexes using both methods turn out to be the very, very similar in a lot of patients. So mm. That was my take on it anyway. Okay, so probably the most important rule, uh, most important question I have is, is that hypopnea or hypopnea? It's definitely hypopnea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but it definitely is. It's, all, it's also potato. It's not, it's not potato. It's also it's not. potato. I don't know. Not I heard tomato. Dr. Barry say hypopnea. <laughs> well, but I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Everything sounds better when Rich Barry says it with that Southern That's right. Yeah, that's this right. is true, right? This is true. So have we covered all of the pertinent changes? 
Well, yeah, I think so. I think I think so. I, I, there, there's yeah. one thing I'd like to say that we get on this committee is why do we spend so much time talking about scoring sleep in 30 second epics? And obviously, we know sleep doesn't exist in 30 second epics. It happens in real time. It's a dynamic process. And obviously, computer based scoring, computer assisted scoring is real and it occurs in real time as well. But we still have to have a way, no matter how fancy your computer is or how much artificial intelligence you use or how much smarter we get as clinicians to talk about what we're seeing with our eyes as, as humans. And so this manual is really meant to be the standard for the visual analysis of sleep and, and provide some sort of a framework so we can all be talking about the same things and looking at the same things um, you know, across our medical community. And so I think that there, people get frustrated with this committee, um, I think because they, you know, we're not embracing or we're seen to be like not embracing technology. I don't think that's the case. And, and maybe in the future, we'll be having conversations like this about the odds ratio product instead to talk about, you know, how we score sleep. But right now, you know, that's a proprietary system. And unless you have that system, that probably doesn't really mean that much to you. So that, that's my last thought. Dr. Barry, final thoughts? Uh, well, I, I agree with Matt. Uh, uh, you can spend a lot of time deciding whether an epic is stage two or three, but uh, you have to ask yourself, does that does that have any clinical importance to the patient? And the answer is probably you should be worried about other things. Al, Dr. Rodriguez, any yes. final thoughts? Yes, I think the, the whole thing from my perspective, being in the committee for two or three years, is like um, we put a lot of effort in this to make it a standard, to make it uh, and congruent with every lab does. And I think having that parameters, as Dr. Berry mentioned before, then we take it from there and do the large clinical studies to show um, the big um, government <laughs> that uh, 3% is valid. But first we need a, a framework and that's the most important thing the, the manual can give to you. And when do we need to implement all of these rules? End of, the, end of December. So by, by midnight of December, <laughs> so the clock is ticking three weeks. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Dr. Kosa, if I could add one last thing, I, I, I just want to thank Dr. Shereen Thomas, who really helps kind of pull this whole thing together. I don't think she That's gets correct. recognized as much as she should. And there were a whole lot of other people that aren't on this call that were critical. Dr. David Plant, Dr. Stuart Kwan, Lourdes DeRoso, Dr. Bradley Vaughn. I mean, all these people who are really critical in kind of making this stuff work. And I just want to make sure they get acknowledged. That's correct. Thank you, Mike. No, I'm glad you did that. I'm glad you did that. The front pages of the manual will really, really show you how many people have been involved with it. It's just... Yeah. It's just amazing, and uh, and I agree with Matt. Uh, Shereen Thomas uh, has been an a, a unbelievable uh, help in all of this. She's awesome. That's correct. So, that Dr. Barry, just... did you do all the pictures? Did you do all the drawings? I did a lot of them, but not all of them. He did all the good ones. I didn't realize you were so artistic. <laughs> well, I, I'm not. Uh, so it was interesting that it, when the very first manual was um, was published, they weren't going to have any pictures, and I thought, well, gee, this is tough. So I volunteered something that I later regretted <laughs> to make some. And uh, you know, they're they're far from perfect, but at least, uh, as uh, as Al said, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. And so that's right. I love it. it's another feather in your cap, anyway, right? I guess. Well, thank you all for joining us today to help us better understand the latest iteration of the AASM scoring manual. Thank you so much. Thank you. Happy holidays, everybody. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.